So Money, episode 372, Millionaire Next Door, Rocky Lalvani. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry. You're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life. Welcome to So Money. So Money is brought to you today by Wealthfront. Wealthfront is the most tax-efficient, low-cost, hassle-free way to invest. Now, many of you I know are interested in simplifying your investment strategy. You want to reduce fees. You want to work with a service that you trust. And Wealthfront delivers. It builds and manages your personalized, globally diversified portfolio. To open an account, the minimum is just $500, and that gets you a periodically rebalanced, diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds. There are zero trading fees, zero hidden fees, and advisory fees that are just a fraction of traditional advisors. In fact, Wealthfront manages your first $10,000 for free. To learn more and sign up, visit wealthfront.com forward slash so money. You're listening to So Money. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Thanks for joining me. Millionaire Next Door Week continues. And today we have Rocky Lalvani. He is a millionaire next door with a very fascinating story of his own. He moved to the U.S. when he was a child from India with his parents. He was only two. And his parents, his family, they had to completely start over. They had about $25 to their name, believe it or not. That's all they were able to bring over with them from India. And he says that his parents were the epitome of the American dream, working hard to provide for their family and teaching Rocky important principles to live well along the way. And we're going to learn some of those principles coming up. Rocky has worked his entire life and he reached millionaire next door status in his 40s by working hard, saving and staying away from debt. But it wasn't without some turbulence. I mean, he was someone who experienced two market crashes, and yet he was still able to end up with seven figures. And now he's 50 years old, continues to live a frugal life. And he says that he and his wife live a rich, abundant life without the price tag. We're going to talk to Rocky. I was really interested to learn about his immigrant background, how he runs numbers. Like, how does he actually know how much to save, how much to invest, how much he's going to need for retirement, because he does plan to retire in the next five, six, seven years. And one fast tip for all of us, how to actually avoid feeling like we need to keep buying things. And I give my own story about how I did this. Rocky gives his own story. And I think it's a really fascinating and important takeaway for all of us. So here we go. Without further ado, here is Rocky Lalvani, our millionaire next door. Rocky Lalvani, welcome to So Money. Millionaire Next Door series continues. Excited to learn how you reached your millions. Welcome to to the show. I'm excited to be here. You've had so many impressive guests, and I'm just honored to be one of them on your show. Of course you'd be on this show. Listen, you are honorable yourself. Uh, We want to learn more about how you reached millionaire status, but let's go back to when you were a kid, because I've been reading your bio, and I've been consumed by what's on your website at richersoul.com, and you've had... Like many people in this country, you come from an immigrant background. You you came here from India when you were a child. Maybe start there a little bit. What was your first kind of a impression of America when you when you landed here? So I, I think for us, what happened when we came to America, our, our family was starting over for the second time, 
And when you came from India at that time, you weren't allowed to bring a lot of money. So you basically had to start off with nothing and, and rebuild. And what I saw growing up as a very young child was that we constantly moved up the social ladder. It seemed like every year things were getting better and better. And all of the, the family and friends that were with us as well did the same. So you literally went from kind of living in, in the not so great parts of, of a city to just quickly and consistently moving up the social ladder. And we started out, you know, you'd buy at that point, I don't even think they had a car. They took public transportation. Then they'd buy a used car. Then they'd buy a new car. Then they'd buy a fancy car. And that's kind of the way everyone went. It was people just progressed. And so I think we just grew up with the expectation you're going to, you'll start at the bottom and you'll reach the top. And when you say social, what you really mean is also economic, you climbed the economic class, the economic ladder. Yes, the, the economic ladder. That's correct. Yes. Going across social uh, stratuses, I guess, you know, from being not so well off and, and living in not so great neighborhoods to moving on up and living in a nicer places. And so what was your impression of money at that age, you know, as far as uh, how you should spend it, how you should save it, what it, what it was used for? And so, and, and then the same principles that I have today, when, when I was young, money was tight. And so we didn't spend very much of it. We always saved. I remember my dad would rather walk than pay a quarter to take the bus. That's the level of savings that they had. And within a fairly short period of time, they were able to actually save a lot of money. They also spent, and they didn't spend cheap they spent frugally. Um, what that means is they would find deals. It was always about negotiating a deal, finding something for a fraction of the cost so that you could live a nicer life without paying for a nicer life. And and that's one thing. I think in the Indian culture, money is something everyone talks about. So when people get together, like, how much did you pay for that? How much does this cost? How did you get that deal? Um so I think money was more of an open conversation within our community. Yeah, that's very similar to the Persian culture too. And I'm actually grateful for it because as a result, you grow up feeling very comfortable around financial topics, financial conversations. It's not a coincidence that I am doing what I'm doing uh, based on the fact that I grew up in a, in a home that where, where money was not taboo. Uh, we obviously had our own issues with money, but the, at least the communication part we had down. <laughs> um, so then you grow up. Um, did you always have a very smooth financial course or were, along the way, were there some stumbling points for you? You mean once I got out of college and Sure. Once working? you just started to be more independent on your own two feet financially, how was the path for you. I, I, we always ask guests on the show for their number one financial failure. It seems strange to ask a millionaire next door about that, but I would—I don't need to assume that you always had this clear path. Uh, were there some stumbling points? I, I think there were. When I was young, meaning before I got out of college, I always made money. I was one of those kids who always hustled, had a paper route, had a job. So when I was young, I always had money. Once I got out of college, though, I started realizing I actually have to save money. So up until the point I got out of college, I don't think I saved a single penny. Once I got out, 
and I got my first real job. I just started automating my savings and I would save as much as I can consistently. I think there were two lessons I learned early in life. The first one was because I was doing relatively well and I was still living at home, so I had no expenses, I would I would probably overspend or overcommit and I'd be like, oh, that's only $50 a month. I'll get that. And that's 30 bucks a month. I'll get that. And that service is 20 bucks a month. I'll get that. And within a short period of time, I realized that all those monthly obligations were crushing me. And so I quickly got rid of them all. Um, And I think that was a good early lesson that don't get trapped into monthly obligations. The second lesson that I probably learned, and and it's taken me most of my life, is that I can't beat the stock market and I should stop trying. And I, I... I think I, like so many people, we, we all want to buy low and sell high. And I've spent my my life chasing returns and buying high and selling low, unfortunately. Mm. But at least the, the principles that were there helped me overcome those mistakes that I've made. Now I don't touch my money. I give it to other people. I like, go invest this for me. Keep it away from me. I'm going to be stupid and make bad decisions. And so, when you do invest, what's the strategy as far as the assets because some millionaires next door, and myself included, we don't really try to chase returns. We're all about the long term. The selections that we choose are index funds. What's your strategy as far as what's in your portfolio? I think early on, I was chasing returns. I was. I always thought I was smarter than I was, and I could somehow beat the stock market. And so I made those mistakes. Now my money is pretty much towards index funds are managed by someone else with just, I I don't want to take a ton of risk and I don't want to, but I I, I have a balanced portfolio. And so for my stock investments, it's, it's relatively balanced. Whatever I can do into low cost index funds that I manage, it goes into the, the lowest cost index fund that just mimics the market. So if I can do what the market does, I'm thrilled and that's best for me. And then I have another pool of money that I use for investing outside of stocks and bonds. And that's something I've gotten into more in the probably the past five years. So real estate. And then I think going forward, I'd like to get more involved in investing in some sort of other businesses that create cash flow mm-hmm. that are that I control more versus relying on the stock market or somebody else to make my wealth. Well, speaking of cash flow, when it comes to earning your first million or, or getting to a place where you consider yourself to be quote unquote financially stable, financially independent, whatever the phrase is that you choose, would you say that your journey is thanks mostly to smart investing, smart saving, or earning enough so that you can have a lot of options and then reach your millionaire status? You reached a million dollars net worth in your 40s, which is early. Um, so for you, what was I, what would you say was the leading strategy or the leading decision that you made with your money that helped you ultimately get to this point? I can tell you it's not my investing capability, <laughs> as I've already mentioned. <laughs> right. I'm not good at that. Uh, two things. Number one, I automate my savings. And so I pay myself first. And How I, much? How much do you pay yourself? Uh, I sat down and I ran numbers because I figured you might ask. So when I look <laughs> at my totals... 27% of my total spends goes to taxes. Um, 27% I save and 45% I, 
I spend. And hopefully that adds up right. So that's where I'm at currently. So why did you come up with 27% saving? Why? I didn't come up with 27%. I think that's just the numbers. So I started out and I started saving just X amount of dollars. And every time I got a raise, I would increase the amount a little bit. So I'm maxing out the 401ks. And then I continued saving outside of a tax deferred. And every time I would pay off a loan, I would just add most of that to my savings pile. So when the mortgage was paid off, I added the mortgage payment to my savings pile. If I took out a car loan and I paid off the car loan, I now add my car loan payment to my savings pile because I don't miss that money. That's the key. If you can figure out a way to save money without missing it, and never mm-hmm. seeing it, then it just keeps building. So I think the 27% just is the amount that ended up, it ended up building too. Uh, I don't think it was that, that's not a magic number. It's just keep adding to your savings rate as much as you can. And I think it's interesting that you have been doing this uh, for many years. You, you know, this wasn't like an idea that popped in your head at age 40, like I want to reach a million dollars and you race towards that for the next five years. It's been a gradual buildup. And through that time, you have experienced like everybody else, fluctuations in the market, big swings in the market, the crash, for example, of 2008, 2009. And so what was your strategy after that? Because that I think was a a very pivotal moment for many people People saw their 401ks get divided by two, and then they just lost hope, and a lot of them pulled out of the market. What did you do when the market crashed? So that was actually, I believe, my that was my second big market crash when I had considerable assets. The first one was 2000. Um, and rolling into 2000, I think I realized that the tech bubble was crazy, and so I sold out early in 2000. So when we had a, a crash in 2000, I rode that storm unbelievably well. And then about 2003, I got back in the market. And from 2003 to 2008, it, life was wonderful. 2008, I looked around and I realized that real estate was crazy and that it wasn't a place to invest. What I didn't realize was the crash of real estate would hammer my stock market portfolio as bad as it did. And and I'll admit, at the bottom of the market, I panicked and I sold. And and that mistake has cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars. But I learned from that. And so now I know that the next time we have a market crash, you're not going to panic and sell. You're just going to ride your storm out. So that's one thing. And I've also learned that I need to diversify more outside of stocks and bonds and and those types of things because everything in the market went down in 2008. It wasn't just stocks. It was bonds. It was um, almost every single asset category, including real estate. So I I made a lot of mistakes along the way. I'll I'll be the first to admit it. And I screwed up 2008 really badly. Well, here we are in 2016. You've bounced back. How does it feel to be a millionaire? Is it what you thought it would feel like? No. Um, <laughs> you know, it's I, well, No, it's not that. I, when you're young, you want to be a millionaire because you want to have all this stuff, right? I spent a lifetime, probably up through my 40s, collecting stuff, 
wanting to live in a big house, have fancy things. And somewhere along the way, I hit a point where it was like, enough's enough. I'm done. And I don't want stuff anymore. And, and literally, we're at a point in our life where it's more about, I, I, I actually paid somebody not long ago to come clean out my crap and get rid of it. We literally went through the house. I'm like, save, get rid of, like in the garbage or donate. And they, they literally, they helped us sort our house out and they took everything and got rid of it. I didn't even want money for it. I just wanted it out. So now that I'm here, I value things very differently. I don't care about fancy stuff. Now it's more about experiences, spending time with the kids, doing things that are meaningful to me, not things that are meaningful to society of, of having fancy things or living this, this fancy, glamorous lifestyle. I don't care about that anymore. I just want to be comfortable and be able to do what I want to do when I want to do it without thinking twice about it. So to me, financial freedom is just about freedom to make the choices you want to make and, and do what you want to do when you want to do it. So it's, it's quite different. I don't care about fancy stuff anymore. And that was a, that was, I think, a very enlightening thing for me. I'm enlightened. So is part of the strategy to become a millionaire at a relatively early age in your 40s, uh, just, is part of that being okay with, require being okay with being a minimalist in some ways or not caring about having the newest technology, the newest car? Do we have to give up those things? And so I, I know that there is, there's a big group out there that wants to live a minimalist lifestyle. If you looked at me, I do not live a minimalist lifestyle in a sense. We, we have nice cars. We keep them forever. We have a nice house. Um, we go to nice places. I spend lots of money, but I spend it wisely and I spend it on what I want instead of what society tells me I should have. We don't, one of the things we've stopped doing is watching TV. And if you don't watch TV and you don't walk into stores, all of a sudden you don't want the latest, greatest iPhone or the latest, greatest this or that. You're content with what you have. And I think that's a big part of it. It's just being content with what you have. It doesn't mean though that you have to live this minimalist lifestyle. I'm not into that at all. I want Nice things, the nice things that matter to me, though, not that matter to making me look good to somebody else. It makes complete sense. I mean, I just think about how my routine has changed since having a child, right? I've, my expenses in some categories have skyrocketed, diapers, milk, uh, cl baby clothes, gear. But on the other hand, I don't think I've shopped for myself, my husband too. We are like, we haven't bought, really gone shopping for ourselves since before the baby. And we don't really watch a lot of TV. We don't have time to go window shopping. And I do think that that has limited our, our desire to really go out there and, and, and consume. And so that lesson is key, is that if you want to save money, change the course of your day sometimes. I would agree with that. If we I put a big red bow on that, that's a pretty good tip. That's a, that's a very good tip. And, and sometimes, you know, and I still have it. It's funny because if I walk into Costco and I see that 80-inch LCD TV, <laughs> I, I still want it. And I'm like, wait a minute, I don't even watch TV. We have a big TV. Right. Why? I, I, 
it's just human nature. I think it's just, you know, you want and you, you think it's going to make you happy. And I think that's one of the things I've learned is those things, they make you happy for a moment and then you're not happy in the future. And if you've still got the bill for that, that item four years later, you're miserable. So, <laughs> you know, uh, say no. But you got a great stuff. picture. You got a great, great. You got a great picture. Yes. <laughs> Flat screen picture. <laughs> Rocky, you mentioned in your, um, in your email to me before we uh, connected what, that you wanted to retire. You want to retire in the next five to 10 years. You're 50 now. What's your plan for retirement? How, when will you feel comfortable enough financially to actually, quote unquote, retire? And I think that's one of the things that's that's happened over the years. When when I was young, my goal was to become a millionaire. And then as I got a little older, I realized if you have a million dollars in the bank, that only gives you, you know, with a 4% withdrawal rate, $40,000 a year. Well, $40,000 a year, it's nice, but it's it's not a ton of money. And so I think I've continued to want to grow that so that I have more available to me. And a, a lot of my things are probably fear driven. I, I don't want to be 80 years old and out of money. So I think I kind of want to grow the pot as big as I can that I never have to worry. And what, is, the what other does that mean though? I'm going to, I'm going to push you on that. What is, you know. Uh, so for, let's just say, for example, I decide that my retirement spending budget is $100,000 a year. So out of that $100,000, I'm going to have to pay taxes because I'm pulling out of uh, tax-deferred accounts. I've got to pay a lot for medical care. Even Medicare is expensive. People don't realize all the, the co-insurance and all of that. I want to travel. I, I want to do different things. I got to pay for a wedding at some point or two or, you know, help kids out. So let's just say I want $100,000 a year for my retirement budget per year. The stats say that in order to do that, I need $2.5 million of investable assets to create $100,000 of cash flow. I say, okay, there's a good chance that'll work. I want a safety margin. So maybe if if I want a little bit safety margin, say, let's go to $3.5 million. And that gives me the safety margin of an extra $40,000 a year so that if we go through 2008, I don't freak out. If something else happens, I don't freak out. If the returns going in the future aren't what they were in the past, I still have my cushion. I don't have to worry about it. So that that's, I think, what that means. I'm also learning to diversify. So real estate, I have rental properties now. That helps create cash flow to take the, the burden off creating another million dollars in the bank. Because if you have rental real estate, that'll throw off, let's say, $50,000 a year in retirement. So that helps the cash flow. And the other thing is I'm, I'm not going to stop working. I think originally my idea was, okay, I, I may become a millionaire and I go sit on a beach and I, I, I sip uh, drinks and learn to play golf. Now that I'm here, I have no desire for that. I'm going to work. And that's literally what my, my website's about, is about giving back, about teaching people these fundamentals. And I think between charity work and just going back and helping people with their finances, that's going to be my retirement. So that'll also create a little bit of, of additional income. And maybe I'll never even have to touch my, my pot of money. 
So I think that's kind of where I'm heading for towards retirement is a little different path than where I started. I'm not going to sit around all day. That You get old and <laughs> probably die fast. Oh, that's that's for sure. Well, you said something interesting earlier, which is that you ran the numbers. What calculators do you use and if there are specific ones? And interesting that you don't just go by those calculations. You added you know, another million to that projection. Is that something that we should all be in the habit of doing, that sometimes calculators don't portray the, the most realistic uh, figure that you need. Uh, absolutely. I think when, and, and that's a lot in, and if you read Tony Robbins book, he even talks about that. And I know you've had, I think Todd Tresseter maybe on, mm -hmm. he talks a lot about that. You're, when you look at calculators and statistics, they're all averages, but that's all it is, is an average. And if, you can actually have an average positive return in the stock market and at the end of 10 years have less money than when you began because it depends when an event occurred. So if you retired in 2008 and you lost half your money, even if – so if, if you lose 50% of your money, you need 100% return to get back to where you started. So if I have $100 and I lose 50 50%. I'm at $50. But to get from 50 back to 100, I need a 100% return. And the average of those two numbers is what? Uh, 75. It still shows positive when you average it, but in reality, you're negative. And so that's why averages and calculators don't work so well. You actually have to look at physical returns. And I know I haven't explained that well. Um, but it, well, I think that the real takeaway is that run the calculators. That's important because that's something that, you know, you can't just do easily on your own. But you want to be a little bit more conservative and save maybe 10, 20 percent more than that. Or as much and as much as you can. I think the easiest way to do that is when you have a pile of money, if you just delay touching it, it will automatically grow. So it's not like you have to keep adding to it. You can change your lifestyle. You can semi-retire and just make enough to pay your current expenses and not save and let your pot of money continue to grow, it'll automatically self-correct for that hmm. just on its own. And that's kind of my plan. I'll, I'm going to retire semi, still earn money so that the pot of money can grow so that I don't have to keep adding to it. Once you have the pot, it, it keeps growing. And I don't know that you even need to worry about calculators. I think most people think 4% is a good number, which is basically, you know, if you have a million dollars, you'll earn $40,000. If you want to go conservative and say, if I have a million dollars, I'll earn $30,000. We'll sit down and say, how much do I need in retirement? You know, how much am I going to get from Social Security? How much am I going to get from somewhere else? And then what's my total number? And then just multiply it. So... If you need $30,000, a million does it. If you want $60,000, two million does it. Mm. And it's fairly simple math. What do you think is the biggest mistake people make with their money? Biggest mistake, if you had to judge. <laughs> and I think we've kind of touched on these two points. Um, number one, people don't save in this country. It's it's amazing. But if you don't pay yourself first and you pay all those other people that you're buying stuff from, you're never going to get ahead. And and you can read 
the papers all the time. So there's multi people who've made millions upon millions of dollars who are broke and bankrupt because they didn't save. So I, I think saving is probably one of the biggest things. And that's just simply pay yourself first before anyone else and, and create that, that pile that will carry you through whatever you need it to carry you through. But what if you're 25 and you're making a starting salary and you have student loans and you've got your rent and you've got all these other expenses? Uh, would you say at some point it's not just a savings problem, but an income problem and a debt problem from, from education? How do you reconcile all of that and still pay yourself first? So, yes, there is somewhat of an income problem. So, uh, clearly, if you're young, focus more on how can I increase my income as fast as possible. But, see, you've already started the problem. You, you've got debt. You're 25 years old with massive debt. Don't don't get into college debt. There are ways to get through college without getting into debt. I've already told my kids, I said, you're responsible for paying your college and you're not allowed to take out a loan. Figure out a way. And there are ways to do that. So don't make the first mistake of going into massive debt. Number two, when you get out of college, you're still young. You had a blast in college. Every, you know, at my age, college, you look back fondly on college. We didn't spend a lot in college. Live like you're in college for the first few years of your life and don't raise your lifestyle to this new income that you just got. Live like you're in college and have fun. And then you don't have as much of an income problem. You still have a spending problem. So it's so get true. It's so, but you know, it's hard. I, I, I totally agree with you. And that's something that I always preach and, and lived by that rule myself. I tried to, but it's one thing, you know, you go from making $0 in college to suddenly, you know, $40,000 a year. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm loaded. <laughs> and so your perspective on what you can really afford uh, is gets jaded. But uh, you're right. You know, pretend just live in your sweatpants and maybe even still live with your parents for a few years. And I, I, I went through that. I mean, I came out of college and I did all right my first year. My second year, I was making probably $50,000. Now, you know, I'm 50. So that was a long time ago. <laughs> um that was a good salary. It it was a good income. I I felt like I had more money than, you know, I needed. And I overspent to a certain extent. However, I lived at home. I had no debt. And so I was able to immediately just start saving. And, and that's the key. When you come out, wherever you are, get rid of your debt. Make that your number one goal in life. Get rid of debt. Don't sign up for monthly re reoccurring expenses. If you can live at home or live cheap, live cheap. If, if you spend those first few years building that solid foundation, then the rest of your life will be great. But if you spend those first few years blowing that 40000 and having a great life, the rest of your life is going to be a struggle. It, and it's just a choice you have to make. And when you're young and you haven't experienced $50,000 – you can experience 20 and still be thrilled and be just as happy as somebody who's making 50. Well, Rocky, I think what you just said is brilliant, that your financial life, much like life in general, comes down to a series of choices, which is extremely empowering because at the end of the day, you have the power to uh, 
to, to determine your financial fate. And I know that some things are out of our control, but so much is. And so thank you for your great story, your advice, and tell us how we can learn more about you and where can we find you online? You can find me at richersoul.com. And that's kind of my, my retirement plan is, is partially to give back, to help people learn about these basic money principles, to make wise choices. And you can contact me on there, email me. I'd be more than happy to answer your questions and help you build a strong financial future so that you have a great life. Thanks again to Rocky. His website is richersoul.com. He's also on Twitter at Rocky Lalvani. If you missed any of this or want to grab the transcript, leave a comment for this episode, please head over to somoneypodcast.com. That's where you can find us. And while you're there, click on Ask Farnoosh. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions about money, career, life, send that my way. Every Friday, I dedicate the show to answering listeners' questions. Hope to hear from you. And Millionaire Next Door Week continues tomorrow with another fascinating story. Stay right here. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money.